important to all of us. Now at this time, I'd like to invite Reverend Jonathan Langerak to the pulpit. Jonathan, Reverend Langerak has just started his second charge. He first served in the Heritage Protestant Reformed Church in Sioux Falls, South Dakota. He was ordained there into the ministry in 2018. And this past Sunday, correct, you were ordained, or installed into the Office of Minister at the Covenant of Grace Protestant Reformed Church in Spokane. Reverend Langrack, if you can come forward, go ahead, and it's nice to have you here, especially having spent time with you in seminary. We had two years of overlap. Thank you, Reverend Cordes, for that introduction. And I have fond memories of the couple of year, years that our seminary instruction overlapped. Thank you to the Council of Redlands for the invitation to speak. It's an honor to have this opportunity to speak to myself and all of us tonight on the subject of the church's self-reflective response to chastening. And before I get into my speech, I'd like us to turn to the Word of God in Daniel chapter 9. Since, this, since in my speech I'll be explaining the various sections of this prayer, which is Daniel's self-reflective response to chastening on behalf of himself and all Israel, and which is fitting for us to consider as we address that topic now. I ask your indulgence as we read verses 1 through 19 of Daniel 9, a rather lengthy section, but as I said, much of my speech will be taken up with the explanation and application of this passage. So let's read God's Word in Daniel 9, verses 1 through 19. In the first year of Darius, the son of Ahasuerus of the seed of the Medes, which was made king over the realm of the Chaldeans, in the first year of his reign, I, Daniel, understood by books the number of the years whereof the word of the Lord came to Jeremiah the prophet, that he would accomplish seventy years in the desolations of Jerusalem. And I set my face unto the Lord God to seek by prayer and supplications with fasting and sackcloth and ashes. And I prayed unto the Lord my God and made my confession and said, O Lord, the great and dreadful God, keeping the covenant and mercy to them that love him and to them that keep his commandments, we have sinned and have committed iniquity and have done wickedly and have rebelled even by departing from thy precepts and from thy judgments. Neither have we hearkened unto thy servants, the prophets, which spake in thy name to our kings, our princes, and our fathers, and to all the people of the land. O Lord, righteousness belongeth unto thee, but unto us confusion of faces as at this day, to the men of Judah and to the inhabitants of Jerusalem, and unto all Israel that are near and that are far off through all the countries whither thou hast driven them because of their trespass that they have trespassed against thee. 
O Lord, to us belongeth confusion of face, to our kings, to our princes, and to our fathers, because we have sinned against Thee. To the Lord our God belong mercies and forgivenesses, though we have rebelled against Him. Neither have we obeyed the voice of the Lord our God to walk in His laws which He set before us by His servants the prophets, Yea, all Israel have transgressed thy law, even by departing, that they might not obey thy voice. Therefore the curse is poured upon us, and the oath that is written in the law of Moses, the servant of God, because we have sinned against him. And he hath confirmed his words which he spake against us, and against our judges that judged us, by bringing upon us a great evil, For under the whole heaven hath not been done as hath been done upon Jerusalem. As it is written in the law of Moses, all this evil is come upon us. Yet made we not our prayer before the Lord our God, that we might turn from our iniquities and understand thy truth. Therefore hath the Lord watched upon the evil and brought it upon us, For the Lord our God is righteous in all his works which he doeth, for we obeyed not his voice. And now, O Lord our God, thou hast brought thy people forth out of the land of Egypt with a mighty hand, and hast gotten thee renown as at this day we have sinned, we have done wickedly. O Lord, according to all thy righteousness, I beseech thee, let thine anger and thy fury be turned away from thy city Jerusalem, thy holy mountain, because for our sins and for for the iniquities of our fathers, Jerusalem and thy people are become a reproach to all that are about us. Now, therefore, O Lord our God, hear the prayer of thy servant and his supplications And cause thy face to shine upon thy sanctuary that is desolate for the Lord's sake. O my God, incline thine ear and hear. Open thine eyes and behold our desolations and the city which is called by thy name. For we do not present our supplications before thee for our righteousnesses, but for thy great mercies. O Lord, hear. O Lord, forgive. O Lord, hearken and do. Defer not for thine own sake, O my God, for thy city and thy people are called by thy name. By way of introduction to my speech tonight, I take it for granted that you all understand and will agree with me that as churches, as congregations, And as I look out over the audience, scarcely a family has not been untouched by division or separation, by acrimony, or by unloving and even hate-filled words spoken against us by others. And I take that you will agree with me that these belong to 
the chastising of the Lord. And I take for granted also that you will, as Bible literate Christians, understand that we believe and we understand a stark distinction between punishment and chastening. Punishing is the Lord's visitation of His killing and damning wrath upon the objects of that wrath that He has appointed to destruction from all eternity. And by that, by those punishments with which God is angry with the wicked every day, He brings the wicked down to destruction in this life and in the life to come. That's punishment which God visits on His and His church's enemies. But chastening is the visitation of God's fatherly hand upon the children, the sons and daughters, the church chosen to everlasting life, whom He loves with an everlasting love, who He draws to Himself with cords of love from all eternity, whom He sent His Son, Jesus Christ, to die for, whom He inhabits by His Spirit, and whom He is bringing towards glory. And it is in response to chastening and not to punishment that Daniel offers by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit his self-reflective prayer in Daniel 9, which serves as a template for us as believers, as office bearers, and as churches in our own response to the chastening of the Lord that we have experienced, especially in the last year and a half, that we have felt ourselves to be under. I do not mean to imply that there is a one-to-one comparison between the church in Daniel's day and the church in our own. But I seek to use this prayer as a template and to make application from it to ourselves. For the Word of God gives us the words that God wishes us to speak to Him as we make our prayers from our hearts to His throne of grace. And so I want to notice four things from Daniel's prayer. First, his supplication. Secondly, his adoration. Thirdly, his confession. Because this is the most extensive part of Daniel's prayer, this will be a more lengthy section of the speech. And finally, Daniel's petition. I want to explain what Daniel is saying, and then I want to make application of each of those four things to us. First, let's notice that Scripture was the occasion for Daniel's supplication. The date with which Daniel 9 begins is significant because it is noted that it was the first year of Darius, the son of Ahasuerus, the seed of the Medes, according to verse 1, which indicates that there was a change of leadership in the earthly kingdom of the world. Babylon the Great was fallen, which Nebuchadnezzar had built for the honor of his majesty and the glory of his name. 
and these historical circumstances which Daniel witnessed, he understood to be the fulfillment of the prophecies of Jeremiah, which he had been reading, particularly Jeremiah 25, verses 11 and 12, and 29, verses 10 and 11, where Jeremiah notes that 70 years was allotted for Babylon's domination and Judah's desolation. And wherever you begin the counting, and there are different ways of doing that, it's clear that Jeremiah's inspired prediction about the duration of the captivity in Babylon was accurate and definite. And even though they had been written in Judah, they were understood by Daniel and by God's people in Babylon to be the Word of God. And Daniel was not mystified by these prophecies of Jeremiah. But his soul and his spirit was stirred by them. If Babylon's ruin is at hand, if Babylon the great is fallen, Jehovah is about to return the captivity of Zion. For he had said through Jeremiah in Jeremiah 29 verse 10, Thus saith the Lord, that after 70 years be accomplished at Babylon, I will visit you and perform my good word toward you in causing you to return to this place. And Daniel's response, his God-ordained, Christ-oriented, Spirit-worked response, was verse 3. So I set my face unto the Lord God to seek by prayer and supplications with fasting and sackcloth and ashes. And I prayed unto the Lord my God. And in the end, he begged for Jerusalem's restoration. Jehovah's promises spurred his servants' prayers. And I note that Babylon as the great type of the anti-Christian kingdom and its fall, as Daniel witnessed it at this time, ought to remind all of us that we as a as believers, as congregations and as a denomination are at the end of the ages. Upon us the end of the worlds are come. And although we have not yet witnessed the fall of Babylon the Great as it will be manifested in the anti-Christian kingdom and the great whore, the, the church of the last day as it will come to full expression in the religious organization that rides the beast that is the anti-Christian kingdom, we have occasion to remember that we live in the last days and that our response to the fact that we see God fulfilling His promises in the world and in the church fulfilling His word of what must take place before the coming of Christ, a response such as Daniel's is appropriate. To set our face unto the Lord God, to seek by prayer and supplications, with fasting, something we as Reformed people aren't as familiar with as perhaps we should be, and sackcloth and ashes, and to pray unto the Lord our God. Now, I want to make application of this to us. I want to do that, first of all, to office bearers, for this is 
the, the design of this time together is an office bears conference. And for us as pastors, we have the calling to lead our congregation Sunday by Sunday in prayers and supplications to the Lord. And as we consider our response to chastening, our supplication must be for humility. To be as responsive to God's Word, being fulfilled as Daniel was. To remember that we are not worthy that God should fulfill His promise over us. To throw down Babylon the Great and to exalt us as His church to heavenly glory. And as pastors, we need to remember that, as Daniel did, that God had called him to be a servant leader. And so he supplicates as one who recognizes himself in relation to God as nothing. For us as believers, we need to also pray for the humility to submit to the will of God and to let God's Word become our prayer book as we consider the chastisement that we may experience in our own lives personally, in general, and specifically as we experience chastisement in relation to the controversy that has taken place in our churches, the disruption it has brought in our families and relationships, and that it may still yet bring in our lives. And as a denomination, Daniel's supplication needs to be a call for us. A reminder that our calling as church always is to set our face to seek the Lord. To seek the Lord. That brings us to the second part of Daniel's prayer and the second point, as it were, of the speech tonight that I wish to consider, Daniel's adoration of the Lord. He addresses the Lord in verse 4. O Lord, the great and dreadful God, keeping the covenant and mercy for those who love Him and to them that keep His commandments. This is the address of his prayer and it is an adoring address. The main burden, as I mentioned already and as we will see, is confession of sin and petition of the Lord. But adoration is not missing. Often, in the prayers of God's saints, as they're recorded in Scripture, there is adoration. It may be brief, as the simple address, Lord, at the beginning of Psalm 3 or rather extended adoration as we find in Daniel's prayer of thanksgiving to God for revealing to him the meaning of Nebuchadnezzar's dream in Daniel 2, verses 20 through 22. But adoration is where Daniel starts. And again, Scripture is the inspiration for his adoration as for his supplication. We find the footprints of the, of the phraseology of the words that Daniel uses here as he addresses God in humility 
personally and on behalf of the people in passages of Scripture before and after Daniel 9. In Deuteronomy 7, verses 9 and 21, for example, God spoke to Israel of Himself as follows, Know therefore that the Lord thy God, He is God, the faithful God, which keepeth covenant and mercy with them that love Him and keep His commandments to a thousand generations. The Lord thy God is among you, a mighty God and terrible. And years after Daniel, when it was the turn of Nehemiah to lead back a, re- a return from captivity and to lead the people in building the walls of Jerusalem and again to confess that God had been faithful to them even as He had chastised them. Nehemiah says in chapter 9, verse 32, I beseech Thee, O Lord God of heaven, the great and terrible God that keepeth covenant and mercy for them that love Him and observe His commandments. Now therefore our God, the great and mighty and the terrible God, who keepest covenant and mercy, let not all the trouble seem little before Thee that hath come upon us, on our kings, In the New Testament, elders fulfill the Old Testament office of kings. On our princes, on our priests, our deacons, and on our prophets, our pastors, and on our fathers, and on all thy people since the time of the kings of Assyria unto this day. Howbeit thou art just in all that is brought upon us, for thou hast done right, but we have done wickedly. Brother office bears and people of God, this God whom Daniel addresses as the Lord, great and terrible in the midst of his people, is our God. He is both fearful and faithful. He keeps covenant with those who fear Him because He has loved them. And He is a mighty God and terrible. He is both great and good who makes us tremble with reverence and thrill with rejoicing. Daniel teaches us how to adore and acclaim God. To do so in heartfelt, although few words. And this in spite of our circumstances or feelings simply because God is and remains who He is and has revealed Himself to be in His Word and in His works. And that does not change. Do we know, brother, office bearers, whom we are speaking to when we address our God on behalf of our congregation Sunday by Sunday as our Father which art in heaven? Believers, adore God 
and not men has become evident among those who have left that there is man following driving their continuing movement. But we need to remember that those things that we profess to be and are genuinely horrified by and for which our hearts ache as we see our loved ones and family members following men are tendencies that can be found even in our own churches. And I I would speak personally, and I believe all our pastors here will agree with me, people of God do not adore us. Do not follow us. But as the writer to the Hebrews says in Hebrews chapter 13, follow our faith. And look at the object of our faith, which is Jesus Christ. Appreciate your pastor and your elders and deacons for their faith and the work they do by faith. Follow their faith. Do not be followers of men but adore God. And for us as a denomination, we need to remember, as the previous speaker especially emphasized to us, that we are not the only ones who pray as believers, as congregations, as denominations to the Lord as a great and dreadful God as a God who keeps covenant and mercy to them that love Him and to them that keep His commandments. Daniel and, all, and, the Christi- and Christians in all ages have prayed this. And we are not the only ones who so adore God today. But all over the earth, among believers we are privileged to know and believers who we will perhaps come to know only in heaven the name of God is adored and we need to adore him for that now third notice with me Daniel's self-involving confession this prayer of Daniel is sad because it is a prayer of confession and Daniel himself is awash with Israel's sins And we find his confession extending from verses 5 to 14. And there are themes that he repeats throughout these verses of of confession. And again, as the previous speaker noted, I do not believe that our congregations or denomination as a whole is a whore or the great whore. I believe it is blasphemy against Christ and His presence in 
our congregations and denomination. To label the church of Jesus Christ as it is present among us in that way. And so, I do not want us to get the wrong impression that we are the Israel for which Daniel was praying, or that there is a one-to-one comparison between the Israel who had gone astray from God and was chastised by Him with 70 years in Babylon and our churches. But, again, I remind us that Daniel's prayer gives us the words to speak and the words to speak in confession to God so that insofar as we, as individual believers, as office bearers, and as congregations, have committed spiritual adultery against God, we may use these words to confess our sins before Him. Daniel speaks of Israel's sins in terms of four words that begin with the letter D. I do that as a way of remembering. He confesses Israel's sinful deeds. He confesses His and Israel's sinful defiance, their sinful defection, and their sinful deafness. In verses 5, 6, 8, and 11, and 15, he speaks of their deeds in terms of sin. We have sinned. We have committed iniquity. To us belongeth confusion of face because we have sinned against Thee. We have sinned against Him. We have sinned and done wickedly. To sin, as you understand, as you have heard explained before, is to aim at any other target than the target of the glory of God, than the target of the adoration of His name, than the target of the honor of His majesty. Now, specifically, with our deeds. But instead, to aim at our own glory our own honor, and our own majesty. Secondly, Daniel confesses Israel's sinful defiance in verses 5, 9, and 11. We have rebelled. And that means we have stepped over the line. God has drawn a line in the sand with His commandments and with His laws, and we have have willfully stepped over those lines. We have willfully rebelled against Him. Then sinful defection. Verse, the last part of verse 5. We have, depart, we have sinned even by departing from thy precepts and from thy judgments. So he says Israel stepped over the line of God's that God had drawn in the line that God had drawn in the sand by his law and his commandments and had continued in departing from them. And finally, he confesses Israel's deafness. Spiritual deafness in verses 6, 10, 11, and 14. We have not hearkened. 
We have not listened to thy servants, the prophets, which spake in thy name to our kings, our princes, and our fathers, and to all the people of the land. We have not obeyed the voice of the Lord our God to walk in his laws, which he set before us by his servants, the prophets. Deeds, defiance, defection, and deafness were the occasions for Israel's great guilt before God which he sums up in verse 16 when he says, O Lord, according to all thy righteousness I beseech thee, let thine anger and thy fury be turned away from thy city Jerusalem, thy holy mountain, because of our sins and for the iniquities of our fathers. Jerusalem and thy people are become a reproach to all that are about us. And then as part of his confession, Daniel goes on to mourn the obvious consequences of such compounded guilt. Daniel is well aware of the fact that the world is always watching the church and God judges the church right before the watching world with obvious consequences in the life of the church even for forgiven sins. Who could fail to recognize the hand of God and the clear shame of these homeless Jews whom Jehovah had banished from the promised land to exile in Babylon for generations. And in the New Testament, the obvious consequences for sin were shown early on in the history of the apostolic church. As Acts 5 relates, when God's hand publicly struck down Ananias and Sapphira and they dropped dead in front of the whole church. And the word went around, don't go there, people die. Daniel finds his only hope, and that of Israel, and the abundant mercy of God. In verses 9 and 10, Daniel uses plurals, which might sound a bit cumbersome to our ears, but serve to emphasize in bold relief the multiple and repeated acts of compassion and forgiveness on God's part. To the Lord our God, he says in verses 9 and 10, belong mercies, compassions, and forgivenesses, though we have rebelled against him. And yet at the same time, notice that Daniel does not allow meditation on God's warm mercy to push out remembrance also of his faithful anger. Verses 11 through 13, he says, Yea, all Israel have transgressed thy law. Therefore the curse is poured upon us and the oath that is written in the law of Moses, the servant of God, because we have sinned against him and he hath confirmed his words which he spake against us and against our judges that judged us by bringing upon us a great evil. Daniel likely has in mind here the covenant uh, threatenings of God from Leviticus 26 verses 14 through 39 and Deuteronomy 28 verses 15 through 68 where Jehovah spelled out in explicit, gory, 
and scary detail, the multiple disasters he would inflict on a people who turn from him to their own idols and their own ways. And Daniel's point is that God has been faithful to his people even in his anger. He has inflicted upon unfaithful Israel precisely what he said he would. Israel saying, great is thy faithfulness. But they forgot that there can be a painful side to that faithfulness. But for all that, it was faithfulness for whom the Lord loves. He chastens. Joshua 23, verses 15 and 16, no doubt were the inspiration again, the biblical inspiration for Daniel's confession here. For in Joshua 23, verses 15 and 16, the old father of Israel had said just before his passing, Therefore it shall come to pass that as all good things are come upon you which the Lord your God promised you, so shall the Lord bring upon you all evil things until he have destroyed you from off this good land which the Lord your God hath given you. When ye have transgressed the covenant of the Lord your God which he commanded you and have gone and served other gods and bowed yourselves to them. Then shall the anger of the Lord be kindled against you, and ye shall quickly perish from off the good land which he hath given you. Daniel's confession is a confession of God's faithfulness in his chastisement. And I want to end the explanation of this section of Daniel's prayer that is confession of sin with two points. Number one, Daniel includes himself. Throughout this section of his prayer, Daniel does not point to Israel alone. He does not neglect to remember that he himself is guilty, even though he had not been alive when Judah had turned toward idolatry in earnest during the reigns of wicked Ahaz and Manasseh. He had been a young man during the final decline and had been taken by a young man with his three friends to Babylon and is described at the beginning of the book of Daniel as a goodly man who feared God. And you well remember how Daniel and his three friends refused to eat the king's meat which had been offered to idols. Yet Daniel does not foist blame now at the end of 70 years upon those people. But throughout he uses the first person plural we, our, us. He includes himself in Israel's guilt. And the second point of Daniel's confession is that he highlights the fact that from all outward appearances at least, it 
It's a possibility that Israel had missed the point of this chastisement. Because what concerns Daniel and what his chief agitation is, is not so much the return to the land, but the people who must return. Or to put it another way, what good would it do to have a people back in the land who still had no sense of their sin and no exercise in repentance, who had never been crushed in spirit over their idolatry? And if we let Daniel teach us, we, we will know better. If the Spirit works these words into our hearts, we understand that one of the primary marks of a Christian, as well as of a Christian church, is that he or she or it, we as the people of God, mourn over our sins. What distinguishes us from the world is not that we are less wicked, is not that the sins which are found in the world are never found in the church of Jesus Christ, but that by the grace of God we have learned to see our wickedness for what it is and that we confess our sins. The church is the only body on earth that confesses sin. The United Nations does not confess sin. The government of the United States or of the Republic of California does not confess sin. Only the church, when Christ is present with her. And as the Good Shepherd is doing His work of seeking and saving the lost. And Daniel's concern is that there is precious little of such sadness and mourning among Israel in his own time. They have gone, he says in verse 13a, through all this evil. And they are without home, without temple, without the Ark of the Covenant, without freedom. And Daniel fears without repentance. Now this brings us to the application and with these applications I'd like to start with what we as a denomination may reflect upon as we think about our self-reflective response to chastening and confessing our deeds defiance defection and deafness toward God and so far as that is true of us As a denomination, we often point out the weaknesses in doctrinal and practical Christian living in other churches. But how often do we balance that by recognizing their strength and wisdom in areas where we are lacking, such as planting churches and spreading the gospel, both in our own land and abroad? How often do we celebrate and pray for the mission work of other churches and denominations among whom it is obvious that Christ is present while at the same time praying for our own mission work 
We are not able to bring the gospel, but we ought to celebrate the fact that God uses other faithful churches and congregations to bring the gospel in areas where we have not been able yet to go. Or, would we accept, for example, a third-party investigation of how a congregation or a classis handles a case of abuse against one or another of the members of the church and humble ourselves under the brotherly examination of other believers who desire to help us be faithful to the Lord's calling to protect the vulnerable, to justly deal with offenders and abusers, and to glorify the name of our Good Shepherd in so doing. As a denomination, might it not be helpful from time to time to make a list of the criticisms that we hear lodged against us and see if there's an element of truth to them. And again, I point to that which we profess to be and genuinely are horrified by in the, in the, the, the sect which is formed from us as churches. In their terminology toward us of whore, of great whore, toward our pastors of, and, and, and other leaders of vipers and, and, and other epithets. But if we would examine our own language toward other churches, denominations, pastors over the years, might we not have occasion to see where they learned their language from? I do not present these out of ingratitude or dissatisfaction. I present them in the spirit of Daniel who prayed that to us belongs confusion of face because we have sinned against thee. Now as believers, perhaps we also have occasion to confess in our, in our lives as, as members of the church our idolatry and remembering the words of 1 John chapter 5, verse 21, little children, keep yourselves from idols, reflect whether or not we have cause to confess to God whether we make idols out of institutions, institutions of our churches with little or no intentional and personal godliness? Do we forget that institutions are not going to heaven, but the people who are members of those institutions are the sheep of the good shepherd and the children of God who are going 
to glory? Do we put emphasis on duties for ourselves and for our children such that they become legalistic standards for ourselves and for others to which if they do not measure up, we consider that we have cause to stand in judgment of them? Do we check boxes but not make spiritual disciplines a matter of the heart? As parents, do we relinquish our spiritual responsibilities to institutions of church and school and let our own intentionality in our approach to raising our children and nurturing them in the admonition of the Lord be gradually undertaken by others. Again, I, I do not present these to blame, to call out any of you specifically. But as a matter for reflection and humiliation before the Lord. And finally, as office bearers, for we ourselves are leaders, and we need to understand our calling to reflect before the Word of God. I present only this. Do do we and have we made an idol of peace? That manifests itself in the church when we pray for peace and unity but don't deal with matters of sin that disrupt the peace and unity of the church. Sinful behaviors and attitudes that are tolerated or kept secret or private when they should be dealt with in order to avoid stepping on toes. The reputation of men becoming greater than the reputation of the Holy One, of the God who dwells in the midst of His church and is the faithful, mighty, and dreadful God. I'm reading Calvin's book concerning scandals, and in page 48 he addresses these words, especially to office bearers as he's considering that there may be scandals which are attributed to the gospel which are not to be which do not arise from the gospel but are attributed to the gospel by those who are seeking occasion against the church as an excuse for not joining themselves or removing themselves from the fellowship of the church Kelvin says in Concerning Scandals, it is absolutely essential that our unruly spirit be tamed and subjugated by the discipline of the cross. We see that while the church flourished with spiritual vigor in the midst of troubles, it has melted away when it has enjoyed or idolized peace too much. I address that to us as office bearers because we are called 
to seek the peace of Jerusalem, to lead God's people in seeking the peace of Jerusalem. When the Bible says pray for the peace of Jerusalem, that is David's prayer as an office bearer on behalf of himself and the Jerusalem in which he lived and worshipped. And as the spiritual head of God's people and type of Christ. But David in his own life was guilty of making peace, an idol of peace and unity, by not dealing with sinful behaviors and attitudes in his own home and family and in his own heart for his sins with Bathsheba, his rape of her, his murder of her husband, and his numbering of the people were all evidences outwardly that for a time he had been losing the battle of faith inside. Do any of these give us reason to say, O God, we have sinned. To us belongs confusion of face, for we have sinned against Thee. To the Lord God belong mercies and forgiveness, though we have rebelled against Him. That's the gospel. And this is the gospel that we need to remember as office bearers, as believers, and as a denomination we have a calling to bring. To those who are around us, to our neighbors, to our acquaintances, to the lands as God gives opportunity to a broken world that does cry out for justice and mercy but knows not of what it speaks. Through the faithful preaching of the gospel, not through the proclamation specifically of Protestant Reformed distinctives, are the lost reached and brought nigh through the call of the Good Shepherd. And that leads us to the fourth section of Daniel's prayer, as we find it in Daniel 9, which is an expression of his primary concern. We find that his petition in verses 15 through 19 really beginning at verse 17, where the words, and now, signals that Daniel is about to make his petition. Most of this prayer is taken up with lamenting sin, that only now does Daniel make his petition. And his primary petition comes in verse 16. O Lord, according to all Thy loving kindnesses, That is, his righteousnesses. I beseech thee, let thine anger and thy fear be turned away from thy city Jerusalem, thy holy mountain, because for our sins and for the iniquities of our fathers, Jerusalem and the people are become a reproach to all that are about us. His primary concern in these verses 
is the reputation of God. His petition is that God will vindicate Himself, is that God will make Himself known as He has in His repeated acts of faithful forgiveness and mercy, including in His chastisement of His people, that God will once again make Himself known to Israel and to the nations as the Savior, the Deliverer, the Preserver, and the Lifter up of His people that God will exalt His arm and His strength in the sight of the heathen and before the saints whom He had loved, whom He would purchase in time with the blood of His only begotten Son and restore them to the land of promise. Daniel understands that In a sense, God ruined His own reputation when He struck down His mountain, when He struck down the people of His own choosing, when He brought them into captivity into the land of Babylon, and when He chastised them as He he chastised them on account of their sins, their transgressions, their rebellions against Him. And of course, the fake news that the Babylonian media caused to be spread abroad was that that the God of Israel was no greater than any of the the gods of any of the other nations that the king of Babylon and and his military juggernaut had overcome. And Daniel pleads, now not his own reputation, not the reputation of Judah, but the reputation of God be restored by God setting the record straight and revealing Himself as the God of glory, of salvation, of mercy, of faithfulness, and of love in the restoration of His people and in the preservation of His church. Beloved, is this our great petition? As office bears, the reputation of our God, not our own reputation as pastors, remembering the words of John the Baptist, He must increase, but I must decrease. Our reputation as elders and deacons. Believers, children of God, brothers and sisters in faith, is the reputation of the God who lives among you, who dwells among you, as the mighty, terrible, and faithful God. Your reason. for membership in the church, for your your prayers, for forgiveness and grace to continue to be faithful, 
as believers, as parents, as fathers and mothers, as husbands and wives, as friends and members of the church. As a denomination, we need to remember that the reputation of our churches is far inferior to, when I say that I don't mean that we don't have a good name, but what I'm saying is we need to remember that we need to find our identity first in being children of God, not in being Protestant Reformed, not in being PR, but as being sons and daughters of the Lord who dwells among us as a church who has been faithful to us for many years and whom we pray, who we pray, whom we pray to will continue to be faithful to us if it serves His reputation and glory. I'd like to end with a quotation from Kelvin, again from Concerning Scandals, and then from the Word of God in Hebrews chapter 13. First of all, Kelvin says in these words concerning the church and her chastisement by the Lord. When we see that the church's life has nevertheless endured for so many generations as if through innumerable deaths, we are bound to conclude that it was preserved by the providence of God. Other circumstances make this power still clearer to us because when it was attacked on all sides by deadly perils, which could have overwhelmed it time and again, with almost the whole world reluctant and glittering in contrast, it always escaped as if from shipwreck. I am not speaking about anything that anyone who is willing to look at the historical records of all the past ages may not easily get to know for himself. It is an ancient complaint of the church that from her youth she was attacked again and again and encountered such hostile unbelievers that they plowed upon her back and made long their furrows. With these words, the Spirit of God wished to revive the godly when they were groaning under the severest of hardships so that by glancing at every period of time from the beginning of the world, they might realize that the church has always been overcome by suffering. We ought to pay attention to this thought so that if ever the state of things in our own time causes us distress, the recollections of those things which our fathers experienced long ago may give us fresh heart. May the prayers of Daniel from long ago give us fresh heart to pray. And to offer and to have a self-reflective response to the chastening of the Lord. And as we do that, let's remember too what the writer to the Hebrews says in chapter 13. Excuse me, chapter 12, where he says, Ye have not yet resisted unto blood, striving against sin. 
And ye have forgotten the exhortation which speaketh unto you as unto children. My son, despise not the chastening of the Lord, nor faint when thou art rebuked of him. For whom the Lord loveth, he chasteneth, and scourgeth every son whom he receiveth. If ye endure chastening, God dealeth with you as with sons. For what son is he whom the Father chasteneth not? But if ye be without chastisement, whereof all are partakers, then are ye bastards and not sons. Furthermore, we have had fathers of our flesh which have corrected us, and we gave them reverence. Shall we not much rather be in subjection unto the Father of spirits and live? For they verily for a few days chastened us after their own pleasure, but he for our profit that we might be partakers of his holiness. Now no chastening for the present seemeth to be joyous, but grievous. Nevertheless, afterward it yieldeth the peaceable fruit of righteousness unto them which are exercised thereby. Wherefore, lift up the hands which hang down and the feeble knees, and make straight paths for your feet, lest that which is lame be turned out of the way, but let it rather be healed. Beloved, may God give you, may God give me as a pastor, and those of us here who are office bearers, as congregations and as a denomination, the grace to let Scripture be the inspiration for supplication, adoration, confession, and petition as we offer personally, collectively, now and in the days ahead, a self-reflective response to chastening. Thank you. Thank you, Reverend Langrack, for that message, for that exposition of Daniel 9 and that application to our hearts. One last announcement for the conference. Invite everyone in attendance here tonight to join us in the back for refreshments. And one last thank you all for being here in attendance. I pray you all were edified, even as I was, at least by the second, third, and fourth speeches. Let's go to God in prayer. Father in heaven, we thank Thee that Thou dost speak to us in and through Thy Word. We thank Thee for this night in which we could come together to hear two different speeches, both address our own sinfulness. And having heard the speeches, we confess that at times we struggle to know what shall we say unto Thee, O Lord. 
but to bow down and give Thee all the praise. What shall we say, but blessed be Thy name, O God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. We are indeed sinful. And even as we confess our sins, we recognize that we are often blind to our own sinfulness. We often struggle to see the the depths of our sin. And we even struggle to articulate our own sorrow of heart, which if we're honest, is at times sorely lacking. Therefore, we pray, O Lord, continue Thy work of grace to preserve us. Fill our hearts with a true and godly sorrow for our sins. Make us willing humbly to confess those sins. We thank Thee for giving us Scripture as a guide so that we can take the very language of Thy Word and make it our own, incorporate it into our own prayers. And We pray that Thou wilt indeed forgive us of all of our sinfulness. Keep us, O Lord, from going down a road of apostasy. Preserve us from ever reaching the point where those marks of Christ's own presence in the church are no longer visible. And above all, fill us with a concern for the honor and the glory of Thy name. Not unto us, O Lord, be glory given. Not unto us, but unto Thee. For Thou art worthy. And may Thy praise be our all-consuming desire, for that is indeed the chief end of man. Bless now our fellowship in this evening. Give rest to the delegates and to all of us. And guide us by Thy providential hand back here tomorrow morning as representatives of the churches to go about the work of the churches in common Bless this meeting of classes. Lead us by Thy Spirit to make good decisions that serve the honor and glory of Thy name. Hear this prayer for Christ's sake. Amen.